0: And I was thirsty as as anything. During that time, at three o'clock in the afternoon, I found a water pan with a dead giraffe in it that had died maybe a month earlier. And the smell was unbelievable. And I remember scraping the muck off the top and drinking that filthy water because I was so thirsty. So I was desperate.
1: Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go and lives to impact. Speaking of that. Rusty Labuskagni, formerly a successful businessman from Zimbabwe, and now a powerful speaker, overcame a trauma that few have ever experienced. In 2003, he was framed and wrongfully convicted of drowning a poacher. As a result of that, Rusty served 10 years in Zimbabwe's prisons, including the notorious Chikarubi Maximum Security Prison during the Zim dollar crash, and with food shortages no running water, people were dying around him on a daily basis. In fact, during his incarceration, I believe he said that over 2,000 people died around him. Now everyone is faced with challenges. We know that. We've experienced it. Hopefully not quite as harrowing as Rusty's, but Rusty emphasizes that who you are and the depth of your determination will get you and me through life's darkest moments. He shows us how we each can harness our inner strength and let go of what we cannot control and focus on that which we can control. Now, after this episode, I hope you recognize that you possess and that I possess all that we need to free ourselves from any self-imposed prisons of limiting beliefs, such as what could have been Or what other people have told you about what you're capable of doing or not capable of doing. And in turn, change our minds and pursue that which we were born to do, that which we were created to do. Now bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and enjoy this inspirational conversation with Rusty. Brace for impact. Rusty Labuskokni, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Very excited to have you. Look forward to talking about your very powerful story and specifically the ideal outcome today, I think for listeners, after they hear your story, is to recognize that they possess all that they need to free themselves from the self-imposed prisons of limiting beliefs, of events that never happened, of stories that other people have told them and to pursue that which they were born to do. And and unfortunately, you had to, you went through what you went through, and we're going to learn more about that. But you recognized while you were imprisoned the power of what you were capable of doing and how you could own your story and use it to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. So really excited to have you. Thank you, Mike. Before we get started into your story, we go back to the beginning a little bit to talk about your family, because I know that your family, your parents, they are very important to you. They, from what I've gathered, although I haven't read your yet to be released book, I, I know that you include them in your book. So tell us about your family. What role did they play in your life beyond the stereotypical stuff?
0: Okay, Mike, my dad was a larger than life, very charismatic person all loved and looked up to. Uh, the discipline side, to me, and I'm, I'm only saying this because it affected me so badly, were the beatings that took place from the age of about five until 10. I can't remember getting a hiding after 10, but I think it was a lot to do with the uh, financial stress that he was going through. But the beatings were horrific, Mike. In that, wow. When you beat a five-year-old child with a stick until he's black and blue on his backside, it affects you, you know. So um, I, I always remember that as some of the because my dad was killed when I was twelve, so Whoa. I didn't have him for a long time.
1: How did he? How did he die?
0: Uh, he was killed in an accident. Mm. With a five-ton trailer fell on him, mm. and. I lived my life in the bush. He, he's first of all, was a cattle ranching, and then went into building, uh, contracting, building fence lines and water reservoirs on million-acre ranches on undeveloped land. And the times that I remember him, apart from the loving, you know, he was everything to us. My dad's car, my dad's dog, and you know, it's all my dad. My dad, um, with the horrific beatings, mm-hmm. and one of them I just remember it was. To something that wasn't even my fault, where uh he was living we were living close to a neighbor, and the neighbor kept on visiting my mom out in the bush, so obviously there was an a jealous element there, and we weren't allowed to get a lift back from that house with the owner because he had used that as, as an excuse to come and visit my mom mm. and one evening we got you know got to the house and the, uh, we had we got a lift to the house um, because he said, no, I'll tell your dad, don't worry. We said we're not allowed to get a lift with you. And when we got there, after he left, I just heard him bellowing for my brother and started beating him and I took off into the sunset. And <clears throat> sneaking back later on that night, at like five in the evening, um, my mom caught me and we were going to a Christmas party at the club uh, in the community there. And she took me into the bath and I heard him shouting, did you find him? Next minute, I was hauled out of the bath by the arm and and threshed uh, in the bedroom badly and messing myself everywhere. And I just remember the effect of those small things as a five-year-old and what they had on me. Mm-hmm. You know? And I remember the face cloth in the morning dried in the middle of the passage where I dropped it. And those small things... Probably at the time to, you know, those people didn't mean much. But to me, it affected me deeply. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my dad was killed. It, it affected our whole family. I mean, he was everything to us. And his ultimate success and and decision and every movement that, that revolved around him. You know, mm-hmm. so when he was taken out of our lives, it was a massive impact on all of us. Mm-hmm. and changed our lives completely. But my mom was an unbelievably bubbly, vivacious, just a lovely person. That, and there were four of us kids. My elder brother, he was 13, I was 12. My sister was eight and nine when my dad was killed. So it was a hell of a thing for my mom to take on, having left school and she was going to become a teacher and, and left there to live with my dad and with just a housewife, roaming across, you know, wild country, being... Being there for him all the time, so she had to now support us children. We grew up battling financially, but never went without due to my mom. So they were, for me, extraordinary people. You know, they mm-hmm. they weren't the normal run of the mill.
1: How did you reconcile, like your love, the love that you had for your dad, with the the, the beatings that he that he gave you, you know, and I, and honestly, I wasn't, I didn't expect you to, to talk about yeah. this. So, but I yeah. think that it's, I think that it's an important kind of like um, clue to how you were able to deal with hardship later.
0: Yeah, Mike, I, obviously it affected me and that's why I'm talking about it. And I've been, you know, over the years before prison, seen people about it because when I lost my dad, then I had another icon who was um, a very close friend of my dad, also a very big, powerful charismatic person, and uh, I looked up to him as my next role model and he was uh, he was a, a man's man you know, so and then uh, he was killed in an airplane crash that I was supposed to be with him on his in his private plane just two years after my dad was killed mm. so that was another huge shock to my life and then I became an angry, angry person, terrified of rejection, terrified of failure. But I was very, very successful in sport. And I was a very good sportsman in rugby and water polo. And and just loved company of people. Mm. I always liked people to like me and didn't like people not to like me.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. I don't know if that had an effect on me, but I never did well with rejection from Mm. that. And I don't know if it was the beatings from my dad. With a, you know, and I went to boarding school at six years old, Mike, so mm. and, and my boarding school was 200 miles from my home, And in those days, with the colonial rules they were, they were the way they were in the English, where you only got to see your parents once in every three months of schooling. So it was a half term in those three months. once even if they came to town, you weren't allowed to see them, their rules. And then you'd go home for a month, and then it'd be another three months, home for a month, another three months. And that that was how it was back then. So you had this craving for your parents, but you never got to, you know, you never got, I mean, he was working. You know, so when I went home for those school holidays, we got the love and affection and and everything for him, but he was also working out in the bush. Mm -hmm. So I would do anything to have a beer with my dad today. I never got to know him, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and you know, people said to me so many times, "If you can just be half of what the man he was, you'll be an incredible person." Mm. So I never got to see that side of of the the man where that I came from. You know, Mm -hmm.
2: yeah, Yeah. that's that's challenging.
0: Very sadly, Mike, the beatings are what I remember, and I just want people to learn that that is not the way to bring children up. You know, it was an old mindset and i hate people to just uh, i'd love to people to learn from that
1: yeah yeah powerful what when you think about your upbringing and the, the losses that you've had and the, the challenges that you had with your relationship and the the lo- the early loss of your of your mentor and your time in sport and in rugby as a national star but also in in other sports. What did all of those things teach you about facing hardship, about grit, and about resilience?
0: Mike, I think um, the one thing that I learned in boarding school and in sport was camaraderie and the value of friends and friendship. And I think that played a huge role in getting through what I had to go through. When you have to dig really deep to find solutions to get through something like I had to go through. I'm I'm sure that a lot of it had to do with what you have to dig um, to find, to get to win a game. That's crucial where it's not always the value of the play, the the quality of the players, but how they, they get together as a family and, and drive through to win a game.
2: Mm.
0: I don't think it's much different in, in prison. You have to be a family. If Mm -hmm. you, Isolate yourself from those guys in there. You won't make it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how it was, you know. But you had to get along.
1: And you took all of the lessons, even before prison, obviously, but like from sport, from, you know, the, 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 the willingness to just, you know, buckle down and do hard work and do the hard things. And that ultimately led to some success as a businessman in Africa, internationally.
2: Yeah,
0: I think, you know, something that I need to also mention is that the Rhodesian War started when I was 12 years old and ended when I was 19. Mm. So we lived through that. You know, I was in the bush the whole time. You know, so I was exposed to all that hardship. And a war is a a tough thing to live through when you're in those years. Mm -hmm. And it teaches you to... To stick together mm. that that working as a team and trusting one another and doing things for other people that uh, you know they'll do for you mm-hmm. you build you build something mike That is that is different and also the the communities that we built up in in uh, rhodesia in those days which became zimbabwe was a family like community are built out of the recreational clubs around the country, mm. mainly in farming and, and uh, cattle ranching communities. And uh, that friendship and camaraderie that you that we built up there was unbelievable. I'll, I'll give you an example, Mike. I remember when I first started business, I went on my own, it was about 80, 1988, and my wife, no, it wasn't. It was about 89. And my wife and two little kids. So they were about two and four years old then. And they were going from near the Gona Rizjo National Park, which is like seven-hour drive to town. And they broke down halfway. And we were on two-way radio. And they radioed me. And I said, okay, hold on. And, and, and that radio could be heard by quite a few people in the, in the area. And someone, one of my friends, overheard the conversation. they had broken down where they were. And, and, and obviously, there was a lot of backwards and forwards trying to make a plan to, to have them. I mean, it was, it was in the middle of nowhere. Some farmer that knew me sent his driver, it was that night, found my wife. Gave her the keys and said, take the Land Cruiser, put all your stuff in there and drive to Boloa and my boss is going to come. We'll take the vehicle and fix it and then I'll drive to Bulawayo and I'll collect the vehicle. So she said, no, no, I can't do that. I, and I don't know who, who is it. And he said, no, no, he knows your dad, he knows your husband. Don't worry. Just take the vehicle and, and carry on to Bulawayo." And that's, that's the sort of camaraderie that there is mm. in Zimbabwe. Mm. It's, it's a very different, a different family-like social bond that we have. You, mm. you do anything for anybody, just because it's the right thing to do, mm. and, and that's how we are. Mm. And I, it's mm. a very unique thing we have here, my kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: Is that what you? Is that how you operated your your safari businesses as well?
0: Yeah, it was, and I had, and I think the success of of any business really depends on, especially a business where you're dealing with with the public, mm-hmm. is the character of person you are. So if you're an attractive personality with, and, and a great character, then you'll be more successful than someone who's just really good at what he does. Mm-hmm. Because people want to be with you.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that had a huge impact and, and on my success. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I started with absolutely nothing and built up to to where I was, you know? Mm -hmm.
1: Where were your businesses in terms of size and revenue before you were put in prison?
0: I had five safari camps. Um, I had a fishing resort on Lake Kariba. I had a water well drilling machine. I was flying my own aircraft. I had 11 boats, nine vehicles. I mean, I was living the good life, make Mm -hmm. no mistake. (laughs) Coming from nothing, Mike, I think, you get more attached to things you didn't have and weren't able to have before mm-hmm. than you should. You know, mm-hmm. so I see life from a very different perspective now. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're taken out of the rat race, we got you get caught up in and you see the mistakes you've made, the opportunities you wasted, the money, the, the money you wasted, opportunities you lost, and and people you neglected,
2: mm-hmm. it
0: uh, gives you a very different vision. Mm-hmm. Of where you want, you know, where I want to go, and what I want out of life now,
2: mm.
0: and then I've realized that your life is about your journey and the people in it, not your assets and wealth alone. Mm. And I learned incredible life lessons from uneducated but intelligent old farm workers in prison, and their way of life and and hard earned wisdom uh, gave me a great sense of peace mm-hmm. deep down. Mm-hmm. Yeah it is amazing what you can pick up from people that have just learned those everyday little things in
1: life. You mentioned that you you got attached to things and you know because because you worked so hard to get them, right? You sacrificed yes. a lot and you came from nothing and you were living the quote-unquote successful life. You know, you had all the toys, beautiful family. And so when something threatened that what would your typical reaction be when, you, when something threatened taking some of that away prior to obviously you being in prison?
0: Yeah. Obviously, when you work really hard for something and it's taken away, it's upsetting. But I always, always, Mike, remember having an incredible positive mental attitude. Mm-hmm. So the, the, nothing was impossible for me. You know, and people always used to say, "You like a cat; you always landed on your feet." But it's not that. I worked like a machine. I had an incredible bunch of guys working for me that I treated like family, and they came first. They were always the blood in the veins of my business, and I looked after them like family. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a huge part of my success is is the way I I worked uh, physically with my labor and and a lot of. Uh, a lot of the success was from that. Mm. Um, how I, you know, if you if you ask, uh, did I get upset when I lost something? Disappointed, but then I just encourage them, let's go again. You know, if, mm-hmm. I, if I lost uh, a concession or something, then just find another one. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always a way. And I, mm-hmm. and I always believed and visualized, Mike. I had this big visualizing I always visualized things in my in my head
2: mm-hmm.
0: of where I wanted to go and what did I in the perfect life,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and I was I was so driven the whole time just to reach the maximum the whole time and and it worked for me. You know, mm-hmm. so a lot of times when I would visualize and just dream of of doing something and and getting something, it would happen exactly like I thought about it a few days before.
1: Mm. But you never visualized being sentenced to fifteen years in prison for something that never happened. And I want us I want us to go, you know, to begin entering that journey because, you know, as someone who's an outsider who, who lives in America, you know, even I know through documentaries and things that I've watched that that poaching is a problem throughout Africa. Uh, yeah and it doesn 't just negatively impact the livelihood of yourself and all of your employees, but it also has a very negative impact on the the environment and and the the actual uh, creatures themselves and their habitat and ecosystem and so I would imagine that this was a problem having the the safari businesses that you had having the fishing camps. I would imagine this is something that you encountered as it as a regular annoyance
0: I did Mike. I had anti poaching units active endlessly from from nineteen eighty eight all the way up uh through my through the years until I was incarcerated in two thousand and three so i was I was active in that, <clears throat> obviously the anti poaching units used to do all the arresting and and patrols and stuff. But what actually took place on the Lake Kariba then, I had a fishing resort in a breeding area, fish breeding area. And netting fish was not allowed in there. And I had a strict policy of catch and release. And then there were a group of poachers that kept on setting their nets across the river. Now, Lake Kariba is massive. It's 320km long and 40km wide. So it's a, it's a huge lake. And you have these big rivers coming in there. And the Sinemwenda River was the river that my fishing resort was on. And they would lay nets right across the river. So fish going upstream to spawn would get caught the whole time, especially during the breeding season. And my manager at the camp at the fishing resort was always too scared to take any action against them. So whenever I flew in with my aircraft, I would go in there and They always knew that I was coming and I was going to remove their nets. And there was conflict between the fishing cooperative and myself. The fishing cooperative were about one kilometer away from the camp, away from the resort in their no breeding area. But they weren't allowed, they weren't permitted to to net fish in their breeding area. And whenever they came in there, I I would... uh, address them and cut the nets and remove nets. And there was a bit of a conflict the whole time, but it was always me, not my manager. Mm -hmm. And on this particular day of the incident, the day before, the the guy that I was supposed to have drowned and and one other main witness, who was the main poacher of the area, was warned by the council, who I pointed out uh, him to, about his activity and all the netting. And they warned him that if he's caught again, uh, they're going to remove his licenses and remove him from the area. So when I saw him in the area, uh, the evening before, I warned him. I said, "I know you're here for a reason." Because what they do is they they put their nets under the water mm-hmm. when they you know when they when they're trying to hide it. So you can't see the net, but they know where they are. They're about one meter under the water, mm. and I warned him that evening. I was I said, "I know you're here to check your nets because they check them at night, not during the day." Mm. Anyway, he said he didn't do that. You know, he's not checking, checking nets. And then we started an argument where he told me he's been there for a long, long time, and I must get out. I'm new. He'll fish net where he wants, and so on. So, the following evening, I saw him again, and I drove. My, as you saw me. Driving my boat towards him, he started paddling fast to the shore, which was about three meters from he was about three meters from the shore. And I thought it was about two hours to drive him to the police station and two hours to drive back. So I thought,, well, let me just give him fright, because uh, he knew that I was going to arrest him. I drove towards him fast, and when he was about three meters from the shore, and I tapped off on the, on the motor. The wake of my boat, tilted his boat, uh, increasing his fright, and him and his friend jumped out into the water, which was about one and a half meters deep. and he they, they were soon scrambled to dry land and and took off into the bush. And we thought nothing more of it. You know we laughed, looked checked in their boat, and there wasn't nothing in there except an old knife uh, wrapped with, in a tube. And we went round the corner where our fishing party was. And they said, no, oh, we heard you coming. How come you turned it around? We told them what happened. And, and we laughed, just uh, saying, well, hopefully he's learned his listening and he, he won't poach you anymore. And the following day, I was called by the, by the neighbor who has a carpenter fishing company. And they net the carpenter fish way in the deep water. And when I arrived there, there were about nine of these guys from the fishing cooperative standing there with machetes and knob like knob curries uh, like a stick with a big knob on the end. They used them for assaulting. And at that time, it was in the middle of the land invasions in Zimbabwe, So It was quite a an unsettled for the farmers and, in the area. And I didn't want them to know that I was nervous. So I walked because they were standing at the gate. So I had to walk right through the middle of them. Anyway, that was quite nerve-wracking, but I didn't want them to see that I was a bit nervous. I walked right through them. Um, I went up to Mike Shaw's house, and he said, oh, Russ, there's, there's a big trouble here. Uh, Mekki, the poacher is accusing you of drowning his friend. But I said, Mike, just call the police. You know? I, I, I don't need any of this stuff. He said, well, I tried. And this other policeman, McCurry, who used to work for us, said, no, he wants to do his investigations. He was a policeman. and..." Once he finds out what he can, then he'll call the police. So I walked, cut a long story short because it can go on and on because other things happened between Macquarie and I on the way. Anyway, he was going to go and do his investigations. When I came back from fishing at lunchtime, he was waiting. And he held up a paddle and he said, no, you killed him with this. And I found blood on a tree sticking out of the water. I'm calling the police. I said, go ahead, Macquarie. So that afternoon, the police arrived. And we all drove out to the scene where the incident took place. There were about 20 of us. Uh, There were three policemen, a whole bunch of them, and about five of us, maybe 15 of us. And Mokuri, this uh, Mechie, this poacher, started telling the story, standing quite quite close to the bank with all of his, about nine guys behind him. The Meki said that they fell into the water. we, We rammed their boat. They fell into the water. And him and his friend grabbed hold of the rails on the boat and then we assaulted them with our fists and they let go and uh, he swam to the bank and his friend couldn't swim and he drowned. So then this Mokori fellow that used to work for us, this ex-policeman, he stepped forward and held up a paddle, and he said no and they killed him with this and there's blood in a tree sticking out of the water. And he said this all in the Shona language, which I couldn't understand at that time, that I, but I learned it in prison. My co-accused, who was in my boat with me, he said, but Macquarie, Mickey has just told the story. He was in there, he was with the guy, and he mentioned nothing about a pedal or blood on a tree. So now they, they started arguing between each other. And then my co said, but the other thing, is that Mekki is indicating that the incident took place here, right here, near the shore. Are you pointing to blood on a tree 140 meters into the water? And then the police started laughing. They said, no, let's go and have a look at the, at the tree. And now my co and I are thinking, well, maybe they've smeared fish blood on the tree or something. Anyway, we all get into the two boats. We drive across there and asked him which tree. He said, no, that tree. We parked next to the tree and my co-cute held on to it. Having a look, I let the controls go. I went there, checked everything. I said, there's nothing. I said, are you sure this is the tree? He said, there was blood on that tree this morning. So then I called all the police. They looked and then they started laughing. So, and I said, but you guys are not writing anything down to the policeman. So they said, no, no, we'll report to our superiors and we'll get back to you. So they said, let's go back to camp, to the resort. So we drove back, and we got back there, and they had some beers, and we offered them tea they wanted beer and then we said and what's this, what happens now so they said no we'll we 'll go back and report to our superiors, and when are you leaving so we said we 're leaving in three days time." So they said, "When you leave, just call by at the police station the the, this, the the fly like a satellite police station not far seventy k's away, and we 'll send the tobacco unit out as uh, but uh, just the regulatory the procedure uh, to look for the body, so we said fine, uh, anyway, no one arrived in those three days, and we drove the day we, were, we left suboku unit arrived, and we arrived at the satellite uh, police station and I never forget the the words We walked in into the gates, parked the vehicles, and while we were walking up to this veranda, there was an intercom there. And I heard this rabid voice over the intercom shouting, Have you arrested those two white men yet? This is definitely, this is clearly a murder case. And i never forget the feeling of my heart jumping into my throat. I mean, I, I got such a fright. And then this guy walked out that had hatred written all over his face and said, Who's Russell? I said that to me, Take your shoes off. I took my shoes off. And who were you with when you killed Wilson? And Spike, my co accused stepped forward and he said, no, I was with him. So made him take his shoes off and they locked us up there. They held us there for eight days until we got bail pending appeal. And then in that time, we did the docket. So the investigating officer asked us, we had to fill in a statement. So I said to him, I've never... Filled in a statement or anything, and it's a long story. So he said, no, just write, I deny all charges. So I wrote that. And my co when he came, I said, if I just put, you deny all charges. So he said, fine. Then about three months later, we had indications. So we all had to come out. We had special permission from the courts to against our bail conditions, to drive out there. We had arranged with the lawyers to meet to, for everyone to be there. We got to the area and there were no, no... We were only there. Two policemen and our party. So none of the poachers were there, nothing. We asked, we, when we asked where they were, we were just told, no, they've done their indications already. But the investigating officer had changed and his name was Philip. So I said, Philip, where's Chabalala? The initial... that's getting off. So he said, no, no, I've taken over and and I've redone the whole docket. And I remember my lawyer saying, but that's not correct procedure. They said, no, I'm just following instructions. So he said, okay. And then while we were giving instructions at the indication, he said, so where did Mickey, the other guy in the boat, pull you out of the boat into the water? So he said, what? They said, no, no, don't worry. I said, no, Philip what did what did Mekki say? He said, no, he got into, he said, he got onto your boat and you got into a fight and he pulled you both into the water. And we started laughing. And I said, did he really say that? And he said, no, no, I, I don't want to answer anymore, you know, don't, I don't want to answer any more questions. So, and he was nice. Anyway, we gave him all the measurements of where we were when we saw them, where, we, where their boat, their boat was and, all where the the, pole, the the tree sticking out, the water was supposed to, was that was supposed to have blood on it, and where the incident took place. And then what I remember when they left the incident, right in the beginning, they took the poacher with them to the police station. And that bothered me a little bit. So after mm-hmm. indications, six months went by. And I had some private investigators, guys, trying to hurry the docket up. And I was just conned into this guy who owed me a lot of money, said, no, he'll hurry it up just as a favor for me. And he ended up antagonizing a lot of people in the police. And the next minute, I heard that there was another, I saw Philip, the the second investigating officer, in a supermarket. And I said, hey, Philip, what's happening to the docket? They said, no, no, I've been taken off the case. And another investigating officer has been appointed, and he's redone the whole docket. I said, okay. And I said, well, how does it look? He said, no, just stick to your story and everything should be fine. I said, okay. When I took the docket, obviously my lawyer has been going through the whole thing with us. And then 10 months after the incident, my lawyer immigrated to New Zealand. (laughs) So we got another lawyer. And he looked at the docket, and the whole story was now, it was national news, and it was was a big thing. And he said, this will never get to court. Don't worry about it. We said, okay. Within three months, uh, we were indicted. Anyway, we went to court. It was a huge shock, obviously. The court case was an absolute joke. Um, They contradicted themselves endlessly in court. At the end of the court case, which took a week, judgment was seven months after that. And in that seven months, I needed my passport released because it was two and a half years later from, since the incident. So the incident was in, was in December 2000, and it was now 2000 and almost 2003, end of 2002. And I wanted to travel to America to market for my safari business. And I asked my lawyer to apply for me for my passport to be released for me against my bail condition. And when it failed, I I then met another lawyer, another judge who had a property that I would I wanted to conduct safaris on. And he was a very nice gentleman. And he was related to the president, unbeknown to me. And he was a young guy, he was 42 Appointed by the president from, he was just a lawyer in, in a town called Kwekwe in Zimbabwe. And he was elevated to uh, be a judge, which didn't augur well with the other judges. But anyway, I said to him, after we had agreed on a, on a, on a contract for the rights to his, to his property, I asked him if he would apply for, or grant me for my passport to be, to be released. They said, yeah, no, I'll look at it for you. Apparently, he went to three other senior judges and the trial judge. And they all said that he wanted money and uh, that he tried to bribe them. And he said they all wanted money. Anyway, those judges then went to the Minister of Justice and the judge that I was uh, in partnership with being related to the president, all one can assume is that the Minister of Justice went to the President because the next day the judge was thrown in jail. Not impeached, nothing. Thrown in jail. And CNN, BBC and Sky News were all in Zimbabwe at that time reporting the land grab and and all the violence. And when the judge got bail pending trial, uh, when he walked out, he walked straight into all the cameras and everything of all these big media people. And he slandered the president, the minister of justice, and uh, the whole justice system in every international paper. That's CNN, Sky News, BBC, all of them. And my name was attached to every article. So now there was a war between the judge and the president. The president had appointed him judge, and now he had slandered the president in all these international papers. And I saw a very influential lawyer, Not long after that, um, that I'd done business with before. And he said to me, Russ, this thing doesn't look good for you. I said, why? He said, there's a war between the judge and the president. And unless the judge is guilty, uh, unless you are guilty, they can't mail the judge. So I said, well, what do you think I should do? And he said, get out of the country. I said, no ways. I didn't do anything. And he said, well, that's my advice. And then three days before judgment, I got a phone call from another very close friend of mine um, who's high up politically. And he said, Russ, get out of the country. You're going to prison. And I said, there's no way. It was a hard uh, decision back then. When I think of it now, you know, I had all my family, my friends, my whole life, everything I'd worked for, everything was there in Zimbabwe. And if I'd run, the first thing is that you're guilty. And you can never come back to your livelihood. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Zimbabwe—it's one like one big family. So when you go to the filling station, the guy knows who you are. You go to the the, to the the grocery store; they all greet you. It's a a very friendly country, and you lose all of that.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. So now you've got to start again in a foreign country as a guilty man on the run the whole time. Mm -hmm. And I just said, "There's no way." And and people said too often. So going through what you went through, would you have run if you had known that? And my answer to that is no, Mike. Mm -hmm. Because your reputation is the most valuable thing you can have. Mm. And I haven't lost that. Mm -hmm. I still have my reputation. Mm -hmm. And my advice to anyone facing anything like that is face up to it. I've always believed that everything happened for for a reason. And I always taught my children that. So when I went to prison, the first thing, of course, is why me? You know, what have I ever done to deserve this? And
1: so you were convicted of a murder that not only you weren't guilty of, but that never took place. There was no body, no physical evidence this ultimately ended up just becoming a case of fulfilling a political vendetta that ultimately you were a a victim of yourself.
0: Yeah, exactly. Mike, there was absolutely no evidence whatsoever. Nobody against police evidence, all the affidavits from the police were there, that they never found blood on the tree. They never found any scratches on either boat. And the, it's common knowledge in the area that the guy was supposed to have drowned is living in Zambia. He's married with two children. Everyone knows it. Mm. But uh, mm. you know, it was a high price to pay when you when you go to prison for something you didn't do or something that didn't even happen.
1: You so sit your there first, and you question. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you, you sit there you question and you question
0: yourself. You know? mm. Yeah. And and uh, my last thought, Mike. Because you have to think it. You know, I always told my children everything happens for a reason. And now I had to walk my talk. And I remember thinking, because I had to think it, that maybe this is a calling. Maybe it's mm. something I need to go through. You know, I, I didn't know, Mike. And unless you start believing those things, you won't get through there mentally. Mm-hmm. Not with what I had to go through.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you didn't, that wasn't your first thought, though, right? I mean, like, no. yeah what, what was your no. first thought you they, they say you're guilty you were like you know not expecting that obviously neither was everybody until the last minutes leading up to it This episode is brought to you by the Lawton marketing group Or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call. What were some of the first thoughts that that initially ran through your head?
0: You know, Mike, the the one thing I I always had a phobia about jail, about prison. I just never wanted to go to prison. You know, you see the guys working on the streets, in their white clothes and that. And in in Zimbabwe, it's always white clothes. And you just thought that that was my worst fear. And then when it happens, and you're guilty, uh, I mean, and they they say you're guilty. The shock. I mean, I was just numb. Mm-hmm. I, there were no words, Mike. Was mm. Just, was something like, I was terrified. Mm. I was deeply. Deeply terrified,
2: mm.
0: and it was—it was, it was the humiliation of being labelled a murderer.
2: Mm.
0: It was just—it was the worst feeling ever. When you've been, you know, Mike, I—I I was a I was a prominent person. I was big into charities. I helped old age homes and orphanages, and and you know, I was I was doing the right thing, and then you end up being labelled a murderer like that and convicted. Mm-hmm. It was. It was just the ultimate, the worst thing that could have ever happened to anyone. How
1: long between the time that they convicted you to the time that you entered your first maximum security prison?
0: Uh, it was about two hours, I think.
1: Holy smokes, two hours! Wow. Yeah. So yeah. what? What? <laughs> yeah. Wow. What? So what? Like, describe to us the 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 transition from the courthouse to two hours later. You're walking through the doors of what is now going to be your home for the next 15 years?
0: Well, Mike, the first thing is, you know, when they slammed that hammer down, accused you, and you were sentenced, the wailing, I was engaged at that time, and my fiance was completely broken, finished. Mm-hmm. My sisters, I mean, there were, there were hundreds of people in the courthouse, and they all surrounded me, and I just remember the the broken faces all around me the tears and the crying and holding my hands and, and you know I was always the rock I was always the one that supported everybody and and uh, I was always very generous and people that you know always hung around with positive people and if they if they couldn't afford to go wherever they were going you know we were going then I'd pay for everybody I just I just love being around people and having fun so when I was convicted, those people, it was like, you know, it affected so many people. And the 54 employees that were working for me and their families and everything were just broken completely. And my, my children, you can only imagine. My, you know, I've been very, very close to my children. So it was tough. From there, they took me down these stairs into this empty cellar-like cellar thing and slammed the doors and I remember climbing onto a cement step, like a, like a bench, and looking out of the grill, there was like a vent, a very, very tight meshed vent. And seeing the judge walking and getting into his Mercedes with his wife and thinking to myself, you know, what right did you have to do that? You know, I didn't do anything.
2: Mm.
0: And I'll tell you, my, my head was just one, one big spin. I just uh, took me out after that, about an hour later, in handcuffs and leg irons, which I, you know, it's very humiliating in Main Street during rush hour. And the the vehicle, the gray prison truck, like a bus, and it had steps that were about three feet off the ground. And there were only two steps. So the first one was about two feet, and then the next step. And you're in handcuffs and leg irons. And you have to, like frog jump onto the first step, holding a rail with two hands on one side because you're handcuffed. And so you're off balance. And I fell like three or four times and they couldn't stop laughing. Mm. And then the people on the street started laughing. And it was just the most degrading, humiliating thing ever. And I got into the truck and obviously I just, my head down just... I didn't know what to think. I was just like the worst nightmare ever. I get to the prison and they make you strip naked and remove your handcuffs and leg irons, and then you walk into the prison. So when you're in reception, they, they march you then to the door of the maximum security exercise yard. And before you walk in, you strip naked. So they take your handcuffs and leg irons off Take all your clothes off, you walk in there with nothing. And there's one thousand guys in there, and I'm the only guy from a foreign descent in there. So of course, everybody's honed in on me. And then you walk in, the guards are sitting on a bench with the wooden top and the steel frame. And they make you crouch down in front of them. There are a thousand guys in there. And they question me for what seemed like forever about where you came from, about your family, business, work, your crime, everything. And finally, they gave me a white, a white shirt and a pair of drawstring white shorts. For the first eight years, you were only ever allowed one set of clothing at any one time. You were never allowed two sets. After six, six months to nine months, you got a change of clothing. Sometimes after nine months, you're just walking around in rags. And we get up to our cells, and there were three sets of cells. So you had single cells, five-man cells, and supposed to be 16-man cells. The single cells all had three people. The five-man cells had 13 people. And the the 16-man cells had between 78 and 82 people. Now, just to give you an idea, there's no furniture in any prison i visited for the first eight years. No beds, no tables, no chairs, no cupboards, nothing. It's just rows of filthy folded blankets and hundreds of well-used water bottles on bare concrete floors. That's it. It's like a newly built hotel that's never been furnished. No paint, no nothing. You go in there and... There were 78 of us. It's 13 meters long, the cell, and three meters wide. Each person had 33 centimeters, which is like 13 inches, marked out on the walls in chalk. That was your space. We were packed like sardines, And because it was three meters wide, which is just over three yards, our legs all intertwined in the middle. So, And you all had to face the same direction, you know. I'm uh, six foot, weigh 200 pounds, so 13 inches. You can only only sleep on your side. Mm-hmm. You weren't allowed to sleep on your back. Never mind you couldn't. And you were packed like sardines all facing the same direction. When you turned over, you all turned over together. It was unbelievable. It was mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. And then the lice. The lice were horrific. And I never knew about lice before I went to prison. And there's some like five millimeters long, mm. which is like a quarter of an inch, and then other tiny little things like, like pepper ticks. Mm-hmm. And they bit you day and night. It never stopped in the first eight years. Never went away in any prison.
2: Mm.
0: They drove you crazy. Mm. Then worse was, Mike, We only, only having one set of clothing, you had to wash your clothes in the cell toilets at night wearing a blanket then hang them on the walls with smuggled book staples to dry by the next morning. So The concrete walls were poured cement into shutters, and little bubbles were left in the cement, and you'd put the the, the staples in those little bubbles to hang your clothes. But by the morning, they were still sometimes damp and freezing in winter, and you'd, you'd you'd iron them with the, like a prison-made sponge made out of polystyrene sacks. Um, iron them, stamp on them, and they hang them again for another 30 minutes to try and dry in time because they unlocked you at 6 o'clock. That was in the first prison. In second prison, they unlocked us at 8 o'clock. That was in Chikarubi Maximum Security Prison. And the first one is Kami Prison, Kami Maximum Security. And then when there was porridge... We got sugarless porridge uh, at eight o'clock, and that you know t- when we went Chikaruby, there were four hundred in the in the hall. They have, the Chikaruby is is in a hexagonal shape. There five big halls with two uh, four hundred in each hall, so there's two thousand guys, and then one hall of two hundred, and the the other part of the hexagon was the admin Block, and there were two hundred guys in there, so two thousand two hundred. Uh, prisoners. So the the Remond prisoners were the 200. Then the five halls of 400 each were the sentenced guys, and then the admin block. So in that 400 <clears throat> in the hall, we, we were unlocked at at eight. Then there was porridge. So just after that, then at 11 o'clock you locked up again. Or you played sport between eight and and 11. You locked up at 11. Unlocked at two. You go straight downstairs, take your lunch, or that was dinner, and straight back up again. Three o'clock, you locked up again. So you locked up for 17 hours plus three hours. So 20 hours a day, you locked up.
1: I mean, I imagine that you oscillated, especially initially, between fear and anger. Those had to be kind of two of your common thoughts.
0: Mike, it was, it was anger, bitterness, Revenge, frustration—I hated them. I—I I, I was very angry. For the first year, I was—I planned everything for each and every one of them, and, and I'm not ashamed to say it. I was, I was very angry.
1: When was enough enough for you? When did you realize that your anger, that your bitterness, that your the plans that you were thinking of in your head on how you were going to get revenge? When did you realize that that was just a waste of, that you were giving them more of yourself as you were doing that?
0: Yeah. It was after about a year, Mike. And I remember it was amazing. And, and I think you can only understand it once you experience it. When you, when you live through that, because, you know, I haven't told you or mentioned the amount of God that died. So my first six years, over 2,200 people died just where I was mm. because there was no food. It was during the Zimbabwe dollar crash and the world, the, the world financial crash in 2008. So I went in in 2003, by 2009, we had a cholera outbreak. It was unbelievable. Guys were dying at your feet They're everywhere. There's people dying. So you, you lived through all of that because in my first year, they started dying. Heavily, so, in my first year, I witnessed over two hundred die, and at that time, the anger, frustration, and hatred was just draining me, and I remember walking in the exercise yard, just looking up and thinking, because now obviously i I'd, I'd question my faith, you know, and I'd prayed like crazy in the courtroom in the prison to go home on bail pending appeal, and everything failed so now. I remember walking and just thinking, and I remember the exact words I said to myself. I just said, let God take care of them and let me get through this road that's been put in front of me. Mm. And it was a feeling of like turning a switch. It was just, just an instant release where I just said, okay, he's taking care of them. Let me just forget about them. What goes around comes around. They get the, they'll get what they deserve.
2: Mm.
0: And once I'd accepted that, my life in prison changed completely. And, and, you know, these angry thoughts kept returning now and again, and I'd push them away until I'd forgiven them wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was after about a year. And if I had not done that, I don't know, you know, how it would have been for me.
1: One of the things that you said, and, and you actually answered just now a question that uh, one of my friends named Chris asked. He, he asked, did you ever feel like God was ignoring you? And what did you do during those times? What did you pray to keep a positive mindset? So maybe we can honor Chris since he asked that question and and speak about that for a moment.
0: When I was 19, I got lost during the war in a very remote area. And now growing up during a war, boarding school from six years old, losing your dad, you know, I was angry and wild and rugby player, you know, was drinking and fighting and things were rough. They were wild. And the last thing you did is go to church. You know that we, we didn't need help. We were fine. And anyone that did go to church, they they needed. You know, they were drips. And when you got your money at boarding school to go to church, you'd go and buy sweets and bunk out, you know? Mm-hmm. So but my mom was a big Christian and my sister, the one sister. And I always remembered and admired my mom. She got on her knees every night and she prayed to God. And I you know I tried to understand it and I try to read the bible, but it didn't I couldn't understand you know most of it, so I just left it and then when I got lost it was it was serious i it was the whole day I didn't have a shirt on, no shoes, no hat in the middle of nowhere, in the heat of the summer, and I hadn't eaten a thing from seven in the morning until five in the evening. And just running to try and find where I was. And it was in a very mountainous area, huge balancing rock, granite rocks, but massive things, some of them seven, 800 yards high. And desperate at about five in the evening, I climbed the, the biggest one I could find. And I went up about 300 feet and I looked around and it was just mountains everywhere. And I was thirsty as, as anything. During that time, at three o'clock in the afternoon, I found a water pan with a dead giraffe in it that had died maybe a month earlier. And the smell was unbelievable. And I remember scraping the muck off the top and drinking that filthy water because I was so thirsty. So I was desperate. When I got 300 feet up at five in that evening, I just, the last thing that, that I would ever have thought of at that time, And I just got got on my knees and I prayed to God. And I'll never forget the feeling ever of like like warm water being poured over me and a total sense of calmness. Hmm. And I stood up, turned around, like being guided, and just walked slowly down that mountain, 300 feet. And where the solid rock went into into the soil, there was long grass. And I walked 10 meters from that and there were two old car tire tracks from the season before. My uncle had shot a kudu bull there. And I followed those car tire tracks. When the, when the tracks ran out, I saw the, the laborer cut the trees, followed, followed for two or three k's, came to an old fence line, followed that and took me up to the road. By then, all the staff, the, the farm laborers were scattered all along calling for me. And even after that, I never mentioned it to people. I told my uncle, But I never said to anybody because I still thought I didn't need help. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now and again, I I never, ever went to church. I would pray now and again with my mom, but I didn't feel I needed it. And then when I went to prison, I decided, no, I need to pray now. Mm. And that didn't work. And then I remember the feeling of that forgiveness when I asked the the Lord to take care of all those people that had that had put me there. That was that was a feeling. And I'll try you know, after that I prayed and I prayed and I still didn't go home and I still didn't go home. And then I was put on death row for a cell phone misdemeanor later on in prison. And it's a bit of a jump because it was six years after my, my incarceration. But I would like to share it with you because it was a turning point in my faith in prison. Mm. Um
1: please yeah sure
0: so somebody reported me for having a phone now it was in a medium security prison and I had a phone which you couldn't dream of in a maximum security so it was, it was uh, six years after I'd been really uh, moved after I'd been incarcerated I was moved to a medium security and uh, they didn't find the phone just through maneuvering quick maneuvering with onslaught guards and that and uh, but they they knew I had a phone, so they put me in solitary confinement for two years. and you know when you when you've had that outside link to to the world with a phone, you have to have it back because it, it was the lifeline. Mm-hmm. So in solitary, I forget no, these I had some fantastic gods that had looked after me in there and I, and I got them to see my sister and ask her. To return, to, to bring the phone back, because uh, I, I got everything taken out as soon as I went to solitary, to bring one phone back with two batteries, then the guard would charge one and I'd keep one and we'd alternate. 18 months later, everything was perfect. And then uh, one of the friendly guards came to my spiral at five in the morning and he said, Russ, they're coming for your phone and there's no way of getting a phone out of there. Mm. But someone bought me a protein powder about a month before. And I noticed when I, broke this, when I opened it and broke the silver seal, I tasted it, and then when I closed it again, the next time I opened it, the seal had resealed itself. So I thought, no, I'll keep this for special occasions like this. They so anyway, knew I opened the powder, broke the seal, took half the powder out, wrapped the phone in plastic, put it in, in the container, replaced the powder, put the seal back, closed it. At 6 o'clock, the guards arrived. And what they do is they make you jump and open your legs like you're hiding something, and then you all walk out naked into the courtyard, and they do their search. And they turned my cell upside down, everyone's cell. I went back in there, and everything was everywhere, but my protein powder is still in good shape. (laughs) You know, I was sitting on my blankets with sugar and everything all over the place, and the head of security came there and he said, where's your phone? I said, I don't have a phone. He said, I know you've got a phone. I said, I don't have a phone. And he gave me a smile and he walked off. Five minutes later, I'm summoned to his office. I go in there and he's sitting behind the desk and four guys, four guards are standing. And he says, take a seat. Now, I hadn't sat in a chair for seven and a half years. And mm. he says, take a seat. So I sit down. He said, have you got a girlfriend called Karen? I said, no. He said, are you sure? He said, no, I had one before prison. Called Karen. He said, okay. When did you last talk to her? He said, long ago, before prison. Is it really? I said, yeah. They handed me a love letter addressed to me from Karen. It said, it was so nice talking to you on the phone the other night. You sound so positive. (laughs) (laughs) They talk about divine intervention again. And I just thought, how on earth am I going to get out of this one? And then this thought just came to me. And I said, no, Karen was having lunch in Bulawaya one day. and She met this lady and they started chatting. And then they realized that they both had boyfriends in the same prison. So the lady said, well, let me call my boyfriend. There's a guard in there. And he can call us. And then you guys can chat. So I had a story. So they said, well, what's the god's name? So I said, oh, I can't remember. And then the questions started flying. You know, how long ago? What did he look like? What drank? Where did you make the call? And I answered it best I could. And then they, they could see that they were getting nowhere. So. An hour later, they escorted me up to the officer in charge's office. When you go up there, it's big trouble. And I go in there and they're waiting. There's like 15 big brass officers that got central intelligence involved. They were in there. And the officer sitting behind the officer in charge sitting behind his big desk and my empty chair in the middle. He says, take a seat. I sit down. So he said, if you don't tell me what the god's name in your life in this prison is going to change. I said, officer, I don't know his name. And then the same question, flying at me, left, right, and center. So I said to him, then, then another guard said to him, do you want to talk to the officer in charge on his own? So I said, yes, please. So they all leave. So I said, officer, we've both been through hell. We've watched hundreds of guys die. I've donated endless stuff to the prison. Soccer balls, volleyballs, volleyball, volleyball nets, soccer uniforms for the squad and the, and, and the teams. I said, can't you just let this song go? He said, Russ, I don't care about you. But I want the God's name now. And he was angry. I said, Well, I don't know his name. I said, Okay, he calls the God and put him on death row in the dark cell. So I go across there, They escorted me there, and the cell was three meters long by one meter wide, same as my solitary, but pitch dark, because the, the only event was covered by a staircase and the electric light didn't work. They made me strip naked, gave me three worn-out lice-ridden blankets, a five-liter container. Cut off at the top was a toilet, same as my solitary, and a liter of water. They locked me in there for 23 hours and 45 minutes a day. Was a I was allowed out five minutes in the morning to clean my teeth, five minutes at 10 o'clock to have a shower, five minutes at 3 o'clock to prepare for lockup. It was cold, lonely, and dark, like being buried alive. Desperate on day six, I got on my knees and I prayed. And the exact same feeling as when I got lost that feeling of like warm water being poured over me. And I knew immediately. I sat on the floor leaning against the wall, and I just waited. About 30 minutes later, I heard my Afrikaans mate in there shouting, Hey, Russ, everything's okay, my mate. Don't worry. Everything's okay. I jumped up. I could faintly hear him from the soccer ground. I said, Hey, He said, everything okay, Russ? Don't worry. So I thought, okay. I lay down on the concrete looking up to the darkness. Within 10 minutes, they unlocked my door. God, that noise goes right through you. I walked out into the blinding sun, across the courtyard, up to his office. And his exact words were, he said, hello, Russ. I said, oh, hello, officer. He said, have you remembered the God's name yet? I said, no, officer. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave it in God's hands. You can go back to yourself. And at the exact moment that I was praying, my sister was paying him 200 US dollars to get me out of there. Mm. So God looks after me.
1: <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. And then, and what a powerful story, you know, what a powerful story. And then you were incarcerated for 10 years. And then yeah. did, did the same officer call you into his office and say you are being released? Or how, how did you find out you were going to get out?
0: Okay, so after eight years, I was taken to a farm prison. So I ran a farm for the prison service. And during that time, it was the first time that I, was, I didn't feel like I was in prison anymore. And then I could sleep, I slept on a proper bed and it was running water because we ran out of water. In 2005, Harari City ran out of water. So for three years, we were allocated one plastic cup of water a day that was to drink, clean your teeth, wash your face, bath, everything for three years. It was unbelievable. So uh, after the full 10 years on the prison farm, because of that cell phone misdemeanor, I had to return back to Harari Central Prison, which was a three-hour drive. And I get there, and they said, you've got to do another 60 days. I said, you're joking. We sorted this out. He said, no. I said, I want you to appeal, and you said I could appeal, but I didn't get the chance. So he said, well, I've got information from HQ, and you need to do another 60 days. So I said, well, I, I need to... I need my lawyers to sort this out in court. Now, I'd done some homework before, and I knew that I was free. They said, come back at, 10, at 11 o'clock. This was the following morning when I was supposed to be free. 11 o'clock, I go back to his office, and he said, I need you to sign this uh, declaration, and then we'll release you. I said, I'm not signing anything. I said, I'm a free man. You're holding me against, against uh, my, uh, my liberty, and I want you to see my lawyer now. He said, "Okay, go back to the to the hall. We'll call you later at two o'clock." Now I'm supposed to be free. I've got a huge party waiting for me. Everything called his office, and he said, "Russ, I've spoken to HQ, and you've got to do another sixty days." I said, "Officer, you're joking." He said, "Yes, I'm joking. You're a free man." I jumped into his arms, gave a big hug, took off out down those stairs, and said cheers to all my, my mates, and I was out the front, out the out that place, and Or my sister and my kids were there. It was it was unbelievable.
1: So was the case a fit like formally overturned, or what was the end result?
0: He had given me sixty days, but when you give somebody sixty more days, you've got it. has got to go through a court, Mm -hmm. and he didn't do that. So it was just an in-house thing, Hmm. and because I wanted to appeal it, uh, he didn't. He didn't take it further.
1: So in terms of in terms of your fifteen year sentence, though, was that just commuted, or or was that you, you, I'm assuming you had an, a team, a legal team in the back, in the background fighting for you this entire time? I would hope.
0: I did constantly, but okay. it was the only thing that came back. It's too political. It's too political. Mm. And when you when you go when you sentenced to like fifteen years, you automatically get one third taken off, no matter what. What you any sentence that you're given, one third is taken off as remission. Mm. But if you run away and they catch you, or you must be in prison, they can put that one third on again.
1: I see. I yeah. see. So, what did you, being in prison for ten years against your will, innocent, no crime actually committed, finding fighting freedom through forgiveness? What did you ultimately ultimately learn about detachment and about true freedom?
0: I think, you know, I learned that a lot of people create their own prisons out of prison. Mm. And, and uh, when you pulled out of the rat race, we all get caught up and you see it very clearly. So I could see, you know, where, even for myself, badly selected careers, sour business partnerships, being obsessed with money and ambition in the corporate world, even unhappy marriages. They're all a form of imprisonment. And only when, you have your, when you're taken out of that and you have your freedom completely taken away do you realize that you were actually in ways in prison too. So that side of, of uh, freedom, I now appreciate 100%. Hmm. And I'll never be, I'll never imprison myself out of prison again like that.
1: So if you're sitting across from someone right now who is who is dealing with, a personal grievance, a grudge, resentment, a failure, or whatever, and they need they need to find freedom, how would you coach them? How would you guide them? What would you say to them to, to encourage them to see beyond their hardship?
0: You know, Mike, too many people just create their own issues when, they, when there's no real issues.
1: Mm.
0: So it's, not, it's not only the freedom. It's appreciating happiness. And finding happiness, even in even the smallest things that happen in, in life, and people don't they don't appreciate smelling the roses. Mm. They they look for the negatives, and, and you know a lot of it you can look at, like in the media, nothing sells unless it's negative. And you turn on CNN and Sky News and everything, it, it's all negative. Mm-hmm. Everything, mm-hmm. newspapers, it's just, and you know, I don't I don't even have a TV attached. My TV's turned off. I don't buy a newspaper, nothing. I get on with my life and I enjoy my life.
2: Mm.
0: And people have forgotten and and been led astray and getting, you know, when I see all the hype with Trump and and all of that stuff, I'm thinking, these people have lost their, their, what life's all about.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Getting stuck in all these arguments that mean nothing. Mm -hmm. They don't, Mm -hmm. you know. And I just find that whether you're a Republican, Democrat, Whatever, mm-hmm. have your opinion in that, but don't you know they get into massive emotional arguments and debates and stuff. Mm-hmm.
1: Focus on what you can control. Yeah, focus on what you can control and change, and and a lot but of that is just yeah. yourself. Yeah, totally. Now, I, yeah. just out of out of curiosity, had you ever read the book "Man's Search for Meaning" by Viktor Frankl?
0: No, I haven't, but I've heard of it.
1: You need to read that book and even as you read it, a lot of things will make even more sense to you. <laughs> because, <Okay. laughs> I mean, he was he was a man who was a psychiatrist in Vienna, scooped up by the Gestapo during World War II, uh, and along with his pregnant wife, mother and father, and was sent to a, a concentration camp. And on the first day, his pregnant wife, his mother and father were killed, and he spent the remaining years of the war being moved around from concentration to concentration camp. And ultimately, nine months after he was released, he wrote a book called *Man's Search for Meaning*, and it's it's profound. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm surprised that you haven't read it yet because I mean, like, it's what you are that a lot of what you the conclusions that you have come to yeah. on your own, he also came to during his time in prison and also impacted and influenced modern psychology as we know it. And okay. what what a lot of people don't know about that book is that the original title was not Man's Search for Meaning. The, ne- the original title of the book was Nevertheless, Say Yes to Life.
0: Really? Yeah. Yes. Wow
1: yeah so I, I want to encourage you to read that book. I think that you know the 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 power of forgiveness is something that is immeasurable um, yeah and and is something that can free us all uh, to to live life to its fullest and to find true freedom because ultimately, when we don't forgive, those those grievances those things end up being anchors around our around our ankles and and hold us back and and almost they you know unforgiveness is the same as as being shackled like you were and and you know promed through the the prison yard yeah absolutely mike so rusty where can people connect with you and learn more about your story and and when is your book coming out?
0: Ironically, my book went to print today.
1: <laughs> oh, cool. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. June 22nd.
0: Um, yes. So um, uh, my book launch is on the 8th of July. The, the, the book printing should be done between the 1st and the 4th, depending on, on the binding, whether they're going to have t- uh, enough time. But definitely by the 4th of July, which is significant too, my book will be ready um but any information about anything that I have dvds for sale as well um and that can all be on uh, found on my website which is www.beatingchains.com not breaking chains beatingchains.com
2: mm-hmm.
0: so that's when you can where you can get a hold of me
1: and and we will uh link to that in the show notes and I'm sure on that website, you have links to all of your social media stuff on Facebook and, and whatnot as well, right?
0: I do. Okay. I do, awesome.
1: Mike. Now, now, I ask three questions of every single guest, whether they've been in prison or not.
0: <laughs> yes, okay.
2: <laughs> and
1: uh, and the, the first question, I always ask these questions at the end. And the uh, the first question is, if you could pick any skill set that you currently possess, so a skill that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be?
0: Okay, Mike. So so I I realized, you know, th- that song by Garth Brooks, Unanswered Prayers. Hmm. I realized how powerful that was being in prison because I prayed and prayed like crazy. I'd go out. And when I looked at where my life was going before prison, and where I see it going now, before prison I was going to be a big man in a little country, and now I feel that I have a calling to to make a difference to to make a difference in 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 hundreds of thousands of lives maybe millions of lives and and hopefully in the prison service in Zimbabwe because I would like a lot of the proceeds that I that come from my talks and my book and everything, to go back into changing the prison system in Zimbabwe, where I believe we're just breeding criminals. And and to answer your question, I have a, a charismatic personality. And and for some reason, people are attracted to me. I make friends very easily. And I think that, uh, that would be something that I've been very fortunate in having that could make a very big difference for my future.
1: Hmm. I love it.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. The, uh, and we're excited to see and watch the impact that you have in the world. Now, the next Thank question is, uh, what are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from completely forgiving those who have hurt us?
0: Okay. So the one, the one is that only the weak forgive. Okay, cause uh, a lot of people think that they, they're tough and they don't need to forgive. Well, I can promise you now, forgiving makes you a stronger man mm. than not forgiving.
2: Mm.
0: Mm. So that's one line. Mm. Another one, I, I think that some people feel if they forgive, then it gives that person another chance to hurt them again. I think that's important. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people feel that it won't it won't affect them if they don't forgive. Mm. They can they, they're tough enough to live with with the way things are. But you can only move forward in life if you forgive those who you believe have done you wrong. Mm. And only when you forgive and let go of the past can you be fully free to move forward with your full potential. Mm. So don't fool yourself that you don't have to forgive mm. you do they they chains that will bind you until you forgive
2: mm.
1: Mm. powerful powerful the the last question is comes from the title of a book and the book title is how will you measure your life that and that's the question but i a little twist that i'm throwing on the question is is i want you to answer it by thinking about a monument right by thinking about like something that when you go into a museum and you see a sculpture a monument that someone made about a an important figure in history what kind of a monument would you want made to to share with with people the the answer to the question how will you measure your life
0: wow <laughs> okay mike so my answer to how I'd like to be measured would be in how many lives I can help mm-hmm. in, in whatever way by the life lessons I learned from what I had to go through. So mm-hmm. when you push so far down and you have to dig really deep to find solutions to get through what I've been through, you grow. You mm-hmm. learn things others would never have to. hmm as long as you can leave the horrors behind and, and take the good with you.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So if I look at that and I look at what sort of monument I would like left of me, <laughs> just somebody who's who's always happy, Mike. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I don't know how, what sort of monkey monument would mm-hmm. depict that, but
2: mm-hmm. I'm
0: mm-hmm. always happy. I've always been happy. And and I think you know, people say, Often say to me, you're the only person that could ever have withstood that and and your resilience and all that. But and they said you're born with that resilience. You're not born with that. I believe that you can become resilient
2: mm-hmm.
0: by the by your positive thinking.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And mm-hmm. remaining happy. And, and those, you know, so many times in prison, we would see guys in you know, my mates and that in, in there, and we'd see guys coming in and they were down, you know, just just depressed and everything. We'd say to ourselves, "That that guy's not going to make it." Mm. Within two months, he was gone. Mm. Mm. And it, the the value and the power of remaining happy and positive is unbelievable.
1: If I we totally could make a you.
0: monument, yeah, you'd make make a monument that could depict that—just someone who's always happy and nothing gets him down. That that's what I would like to. Well,
1: maybe a hundred years from now. You know there will be a a, a great sculptor who will listen to this episode and and make one for you. You know, and again, I just want to I want to recommend like right now like that you go on Amazon and buy Man's Search for Meaning because that book will give will reinforce so strongly all the conclusions that you've come to and what your mission is now. fantastic, Mike. And and so I really highly, highly recommend that. And Rusty, thank you so much for joining us on the show. I can't wait to share this episode with the audience. I think it's going to be tremendously impactful.
0: Thank you, Mike. I have one more thing to say. Sure. I had a, a book reviewer read the book and she phoned me the next day. She couldn't stop crying was the first thing. And she said that she wanted to put it down. She couldn't put it down. She cried. She laughed. She said it is absolutely unbelievable. She read Chantaram, which is another prison story. And she said, this is far more real and just heart-wrenching. So mm. uh, it's an incredible book. You know?
1: mm. I can't wait to read I would... it myself.
0: <laughs> Good, Mike. You'll enjoy it. Thank you so much, Mike. It's been such a pleasure talking to you.
1: Thank you again. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting FlynWealthstrategies.com the Lot Marketing Group, and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact.